Thank you all for joining us on this lovely Monday. My name is Richard Parker. I'm a senior fellow here at the uh, Shorenstein Center. Uh, and our guest today is Ayman Mohedin of Al Jazeera, who covers uh, uh, Gaza and, and has been covering Gaza for the last couple of years. He's a correspondent who's worked in the Gulf states, in Egypt, and elsewhere. Uh, he's an Arab American who grew up in uh, both Egypt and as I've just learned, Michigan, Atlanta, what was the third? <laughs> DC. And DC. So he's seen a lot of terrain on uh, this side of the Atlantic as well as on uh, that side. And we're uh, delighted to have him with us today. Uh, he'll talk for the next 20 minutes or so, and then we'll take questions. And we will ask that students uh, be the first ones to ask questions. And then when students have had a chance to ask questions, we'll open up for general conversation. We will be ending at 1 o'clock today. Uh, and this is on the record. Uh, so, welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Not at all. Thank you uh, very much for having me. It's been a real uh, privilege to be uh, speaking to you today. I just see all the pictures of people that have addressed the, the Kennedy School of Government. So it's very uh, humbling to be among you. And um, uh, I've prepared a few comments on my new uh, iPad. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> keep both your hands on that with this crowd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Over the past few days, I've been like uh, seeing the buzz in the U.S. about uh, you know the iPad being released, and I pre-ordered mine from a tunnel in Gaza, actually. So, <laughs> so uh, I don't know what the big fuss is, but uh, one of the many perks of the tunnels in Gaza is you can order whatever you want. That's fabulous. But uh, I wanted to just start off very briefly and uh, tell you a little bit uh, about myself and my experience, and uh, I really am trying to make this as interactive as engaging as possible. So I'm sure you have a lot of questions about Gaza and about uh, Palestinian politics, and I'm sure we have some Palestinian experts here as well, so they have uh, their views on that. But I've been working as a journalist for uh, about 10 years. In fact, the very first day I started working was uh, President Bush's inauguration uh, back in January of 2001. Um, and uh, in a brief 10 years, I've covered uh, three wars, um, Afghanistan, the Iraq War, and uh, Operation Cast Lead, the uh, Israeli war on Gaza. The only war I didn't cover in the Middle East was the uh, 2006 Lebanon war. I was working for Al Jazeera at the time, but uh, Al Jazeera English had not launched, so we weren't on the air, and we were just kind of doing dry rehearsals and preparing for our launch a few months later. So the joke among many Arab uh, journalists in the region is that uh, it's usually the Republican administrations that keep us all gainfully employed <laughs> with all of the uh, actions. <laughs> So during the Obama administration, it's been kind of quiet on the military front, and that, for my parents' sake, has been actually very positive. They've been very, uh, been very happy. So, but I wanted to kind of start off with just three very quick anecdotes about some of my experiences um, from the three different companies that I've worked for. I've worked for NBC News, which is an American media company, mainly for an American audience. I've worked for CNN, which is an American media organization, but intended for a global audience. And now for Al Jazeera International, which is an Arab media intended for a global audience. So. Shortly after 9-11, I was working for uh, NBC. On the morning of 9-11, I was essentially given a stack of uh, tapes, uh, Bin Laden tapes, and asked to translate uh, <laughs> what he said. And essentially, the network came to me and said, we don't have any Arab speakers you know, in this massive news organization. Can you please have a listen to any of the Bin Laden tapes and tell us if he says anything about wanting to attack America? So I kind of like scratched my head a little bit, thinking like, you know, on the morning of 9-11, you're being given a stack of tapes to ask if the guy since 1997 who says he's wanting to attack America, <laughs> does he want to attack America? So, and I started getting asked a lot of questions like, does 9-11 have any significance? What's the significance of September 11th for Muslims? Does it, is there a historic significance? And I, you know, immediately thought to myself, like, that's a bit strange because, you know, my first initial reaction was, 
you know, I don't think Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda are following the Gregorian calendar. If anything, they're going to be following an Islamic <laughs> calendar, which is on a very different date. So a few years later, I was at, uh, working for CNN in uh, Iraq, and it was shortly after um, the Americans had killed Uday and Qusay, Saddam's uh, two children in Mosul. And I went up with CNN at the time. I was a producer going to interview um, one of the commanders who was involved in the operation. As, as we were approaching the base, the Americans were at the time training what was called in one of its many carnations the Iraqi Civil Defense Corps, which then ultimately became the Iraqi Army. And as we were approaching the gate into the base, the Americans were trying to show the Iraqis how to you know, search vehicles, how to search um, people trying to enter the base. And the American soldiers, you know, casual young guys calling over the Iraqis were saying very casually, yo dogs, come here, yo dogs this, yo dogs that. <laughs> And as the Iraqi soldiers were walking by me, I could hear them being very angry that they were being called dogs. <laughs> and they were saying in Arabic, like, why are they calling us dogs? They're the dogs. They're in our country. They're the dogs, not us. And I was thinking to myself how a very simple miscommunication has created this you know, slight rift between these two you know, forces that were supposed to be helping each other. I mean, in America, we say dog casually. Slang is a term of endearment. You know, young people call each other dogs this, and, you know, obviously it's part of pop culture. And Iraq calling somebody a dog and giving him orders is, you know, very <laughs> insulting. So that was, you know, a brief experience. And the most recent experience that I had actually was working for Al Jazeera, which was this past summer, six months after uh, Israel's war on uh, Gaza. Uh, Hamas was organizing a mass wedding for many of the young men who were victims of the war, many of them amputees, many of them suffered casualties. Uh, and this wedding uh, was a public wedding, a mass wedding, organized by the Islamist movement. Uh, they were given suits, they were given a $500 stipend to help young couples get married. And so, you know, in a very conservative society like Gaza and an organization being organized by an Islamist movement, and because it was public, it was unlikely that you know, the brides would be on stage with the grooms. So what they did was they invited every groom to bring with them a female relative um, on stage as, you know, part of the celebration. And so all the grooms brought with them either a sister or a niece here or some relative. And, you know, it was pictures all around the world. A lot of media covered it. These big social events usually draw a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. It's part of the charitable side of Hamasich, which earns it a little bit of, you know, street credibility, if you will. But the next morning, uh, we did a story obviously on it. The next morning, um, a lot of international news organizations and websites reported Hamas organizes uh, pedophile wedding because all of the images were of young girls. all of these young girls that were dressed in white and all of these uh, you know men. And so I started getting emails from people saying, you know, how could you have covered this pedophile wedding? And people were asking me, you know, seriously, sending me emails. And I even got a radio interview request to talk about what was it like attending this wedding. And, you know, the <laughs> so I actually did the interview just to make sure that I clarify that this was not a wedding between young men who were marrying girls that were seven and eight years old, but in fact that their brides were not allowed to attend because it is a conservative society and stuff and like that. The purpose of these three anecdotes really is to, is to shed light on what I think is really the most important thing nowadays, which is context. Uh, in the absence of context, uh, it's very difficult sometimes to understand what it is that's happening. I think sometimes there's a great deal of emphasis on information. And I subscribe to the notion that information in of itself is not that significant. I don't want to marginalize it. 
But I think the context has now become nearly as important as the information. Um, in this day and age, there's a race to always get the information. And news organizations vie and try to compete with one another to say that they have access to quick information better than any other news organization. And I can assure you in this day and age, with our iPads, with our Twitters, with our flip cams, we will never be able to beat the people who are on the scene who can provide us that information much quicker than a journalist who's going to still get on a plane, fly from Atlanta, New York, or London, arrive in Afghanistan, gather his information, and tell us what has happened. So within a few seconds from right now, we can all know that a suicide bomber has blown himself up on a base in Afghanistan, killing a few Americans. Uh, we can learn the identity of the bomber, not because any news organization is going to tell us, but either an American soldier, an Afghan police army officer, an eyewitness is going to send us that information. But what we won't know, and what we're going to struggle to understand, is who was this bomber? Why would a physician who was living in Turkey married to a Jordanian woman, a father of uh, two girls, a devoted Muslim, um, a law-abiding citizen, dupe his Jordanian intelligence handlers, travel and crisscross across the region, get to Afghanistan, walk into an army base, and blow himself up in the middle of a group of CIA officers who trusted him so much that they didn't even have to search his body or his belongings when he was entering that base. And the emphasis in trying to understand the basics will make us lose sight of the why and the how uh, and what I think is the more important thing, the context. So in this uh, day and age, I think the emphasis has been sometimes too much on information. I think you know we can all generally agree you know, that uh, um, you know, context is generally a set of circumstances or facts that uh, you know, help us understand a particular event or the circumstances that led to an event. And I think um, this is what has made Al Jazeera unique. Al Jazeera is unique, both Al Jazeera Arabic and Al Jazeera English, because for the first time, the Arab world and the Middle East were no longer exclusively you know, subject to the interpretation of Western media organizations. And you know, categorically, first Al Jazeera Arabic in 1996, and then Al Jazeera English in 2006. So <coughs> I think what has made Al Jazeera unique and has made it go through a transition from being the darling of the American administration into becoming uh, you know, the pariah media of uh, many American uh, outlets and, uh, and governments is that it has really challenged the Western media notion of context. It has said to the world and has projected for the first time uh, an image of the Arab world in the Middle East in a different context. And I think that has uh, been very exciting for people in the region, for themselves to see a different global reaction. And more importantly, has now challenged uh, and exposed this part of the world which is so strategically important, yet so complex, um, to the Western world. And I think this is the cr critical juncture where we are at. And I think in this spirit, this is what Al Jazeera English did in 2008 during the Israeli war on Gaza. We were the only major international English language news channel there. There were news agencies there. Um, 
And when the war began on December 27th, there was a great deal of international attention, media journalists trying to get into Gaza. Obviously, they were unable to get in. Now, I personally don't subscribe to the criticism that uh, Israel is to blame for that. Now, I know that sounds kind of strange, and you know, someone would be like, oh, you work for Al Jazeera, you're saying something good about <laughs> Israel, and how could you? But the reality of it is, all of the journalists that wanted to enter the war on December 27th were chasing the information. They had neglected the Gaza story in the run-up to the war. And that's precisely because the information focus has allowed them to adopt a different framework of understanding on how to cover Gaza, which is, you know what, we can cover it from Jerusalem remotely. We can have our bureaus there. We can cut back. We don't need to take the security risks and pay the high costs of insurance by having our reporters on the ground. And now when the information comes, we can get it from the Associated Press. We can get the images from Reuters. We can get the news lines from all the news, the news agencies that we need. And we can simply cover it from Jerusalem. But what ended up happening is the story became very visually exciting. And people needed to be on the ground to see what was happening. So on the morning of December 27th, as the war began, all of the journalists rushed to get in. The Israeli military said, no, you can't get in. It's a war zone. And, and this is why we were left without any major international news organizations on the ground. Now, all the major news international organizations have uh, affiliates and stringers and people they work with. But what they ended up losing was the context. So we were standing in the middle of the Gaza war, and we were having hundreds of thousands of leaflets being dropped on us saying, uh, you know, the Israeli military is warning you this area is going to be bombed. We the journalists. Yeah, we the journalists and, and all the, you know, obviously residents in the near town. Saying, um, you know, the Israeli military is going to bomb this area. Um, if you know of any Hamas hideouts, if you know anyone who's uh, part of the force, please call this number or send us this information. We will protect your anonymity. Give us the intelligence as to what you know. And these leaflets were falling on us. And I was reading all, you know, on major websites and watching on all the organizations that it was seen as a humanitarian gesture. You know? But the reality of it was it was a great tool of psychological warfare. Because you were dropping these thousands of leaflets on people. And I can tell you, as someone who was having the leaflets fallen on me, I didn't know where the hell to go. I was getting a leaflet that says this area was about to be bombed. And I was thinking to myself, like, well, the entire Gaza Strip is being bombed. There's no particular timing that was being organized as to, like, we're going to bomb the north from 3 to 5 and then, like, the south from 6 to 7. So, you know, shift categorically. So for me, it, it was one of those things, again, where had you not been on the ground, you would never be able to feel that. And this is why I think context is so important in the reporting. And what made the Gaza war for Al Jazeera English, specifically here, a very defining moment compared to all of the major Western news organizations that were out. Now, one of the more um, notorious cases of the war was um, at the uh, UN school, the Fahura school. There was, throughout the course of the war, um, UN schools that had been turned into shelters, uh, taking in many of the refugees or people that were fleeing some of the front lines of the fighting. And this particular incident um, was a great source of misinformation. And what happened was the uh, UN had opened up the doors. I think about 3,000 or 4,000 people had come to seek refuge there. And uh, all of a sudden, we get reports that a UN school had been bombed and 40 people or so had been killed. So immediately, all of the news agencies reported that the UN school had been hit and that as a result, these people had uh, had died. The Israeli military came out with a statement saying, um, uh, saying we were uh, returning fire to a site where uh, mortars were being fired at us, 
and defended the action. Uh, all of the media organizations were citing categorically that the UN school had been hit. We didn't report that. The following morning, we reported that the incident had happened, but we were very careful as to not report any of the lines where the actual Israeli shell had landed. The following morning, I went to the UN school in the middle of the war, in the middle of the chaos, and we clearly saw that the shells did not land inside the school. So technically, the UN school was not hit. The people who were killed were people who were seeking refuge at the school but were standing outside of the UN school. So it was in the courtyard of the school. <coughs> Several months later, all of this, the focus had been that the UN schools had been hit. Well, the UN carried out its own investigation and concluded what we had reported on the ground the very next day, which is the UN school had not been hit. So the UN issued a statement saying we would like to correct the reports that were issued on behalf of other media organizations that the UN school had been hit. And the Israeli media and the Israeli government and all of the <coughs> websites jumped at how the media got it wrong. And this became an example of how the Israeli government was, even though it had acknowledged hitting the school, but just because it was state, its own statements were shaped by the media reaction, came out and said, we, we attacked the school because we were uh, responding to fire. And it was cited in the Goldstone Report, and for all of its you know, inaccuracies, the Goldstone Report documented very carefully this particular incident. Uh, the Israeli military also acknowledged in its own findings that it fired at the school nearly 80 meters away, or I'm sorry, the incident where the people were firing at the Israeli military were 80 meters away from the school, and the shells that landed just outside the schoolyards were not um, considered proportionate in terms of you know, international law and stuff. So this was yet another example of how uh, the media whipped a big story into a frenzy with incorrect information and not being able to be there on the ground to see firsthand what had happened. In, you know, I want to say in conclusion, I think if I was to, to divide this room down the middle and I was to hold a coin that had two different sides to it, and I asked this side of the room to tell me what they see on the coin and this side of the room to tell me what they see on this coin, both will have truths in what they see. This side will say, well, we see you know, George Washington's head. This side says, well, we see the eagle. And the reality of it is they're both correct, but not necessarily every side will understand why the other side is saying that they're seeing an eagle or why this side is saying that they see uh, the head of you know, Washington. I think the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has become <coughs> this in American media. It has become, for many years, uh, a coin that had two very distinct sides. And the American media and Western media in general uh, saw one side of that coin. Their attempt to understand the second side or the other side was uh, at, at best skewed. And what Al Jazeera English has done is it has, within this particular conflict, not other issues, but within this particular conflict to an English-speaking audience around the world, it has for the first time broken the exclusivity and the monopoly uh, of context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And this is what made the Gaza War, again, particularly unique in the sense that it was the first Arab-Israeli war in nearly 60 years since the founding of Israel, uh, that a war was not broadcast around the world to an English-speaking audience exclusively by a Western media. And what I mean by Western media, I'm, I'm lumping 
American media, European media, that includes broadcast, it includes print, mm -hmm. uh, includes radio and all that. Uh, and this is what has made Al Jazeera <coughs> English unique, and I think why it has become a very critical um, platform in trying for the United States, which is so heavily engaged in not only the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but in the Middle East, to try to understand the other side of that coin. Now, I joked earlier about a Republican administration, but when President Bush was in office, Al Jazeera was completely banned um, from any access to uh, the top senior administration. I mean, they would not speak to us uh, on camera. It was very difficult to, to be part of anything that other organizations were uh, you know, privileged to. And with the Obama administration, that has uh, changed uh, dramatically. We have interviewed Secretary Gates. We have interviewed uh, Hillary Clinton. We've interviewed top senior <coughs> administration officials. So there is definitely a change uh, in the tide towards Al Jazeera English. Uh, and Al Jazeera English now is working on trying to secure distribution across the U.S. We've secured distribution right now in the metropolitan D.C. area, but unfortunately it is not viewed uh, across the United States. It's still mostly online, um, whereas across the world we have now secured distribution in about 180 million households in nearly the three and a half years that we've been on the air. This is Al Jazeera English. This is Al Jazeera English. English. Yeah, this I'm just specific about Al Jazeera English. Whereas it took CNN nearly 12 years to reach that number in terms of its global distribution. So the appeal for Al Jazeera English is being appreciated in so many parts of the world except the United States, which brings me back to one of the central points, which is I think in this day and age, uh, it's sad that Americans have so much access to information and sometimes uh, not access to knowledge, you know, which I think is simply information analyzed. And if Al Jazeera does anything, it just takes what has now become the right of everyone, information, um, and just simply analyzes it from a different context, from a different perspective, that of the Arab world, the Middle East. Now, you know, some of my uh, editors will probably disagree with me in saying that, well, we're not an Arab network, we're trying to be a global network. But the reality is that Al Jazeera and what it has come to symbolize and what has made it so unique is that geopolitical entity known as the Arab world that has made it in both, um, in both of its coverage and in both of its resources stand out in terms of coverage across uh, the region, uh, particularly because the U.S. is so heavily invested in that part of the world. Um, and I think this, as an American citizen, is one of the greatest disservices I, um, I feel working for Al Jazeera. And this was something I was asked about uh, consistently throughout the war. Throughout the Gaza war, I was doing, uh, obviously reporting for Al Jazeera, but I was getting calls from NPR, from the New York Times, you know, from uh, MSNBC, from NBC, asking me, can you, you know, file something for us? Can you tell us about stuff? And I took it as a great personal responsibility to try and do these things when I, you know, didn't really have to, and it was something that my network kept saying to me, no, we don't, you know, it's <coughs> exclusive to us and we want to do it. But I would always argue saying, look, you know, for the American audience, I always felt it was very important that we at least balance, uh, you know, the Anderson Coopers on the uh, <laughs> with their Blackberries and, you know, Nick Robertson and, and the, so I tried to, tried to offer just a, a slightly different take on what was taking place in Gaza. And in fact, uh, I think it, it has paid off because there is a great deal of interest now to try to understand uh, Al Jazeera English in the U.S. Uh, and they're hopefully making a push that by the end of the year we'll have Al Jazeera more widely accessible to viewers across the United States, which I think will really 
go a great deal in helping Americans understand this part of the world that they're so heavily invested in. So thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, say a little bit more about uh, how you are trying to reach American audiences. Is this through negotiation with cable companies, the satellite broadcasters? What what is the wh where is the wall right now in terms of uh, reaching a larger audience? I think part of the uh, struggle in the U.S. is America is a very decentralized media market. I mean, you can be in a state like New York and have Time Warner and Comcast and several different other media platforms that you're trying to get distributed on. So. Um, I'm not privy to the exact negotiations that take place, but I know one of the, the challenges that we face is twofold. One is convincing the companies in a specific uh, market or in a specific you know, area of uh, coverage that there is an appetite for international right, news right. and that these companies that take Al Jazeera on will uh, have viewers interested in watching. Uh, and I think also overcoming the stigma that Al Jazeera for so many years had been uh, branded as a bad organization mm -hmm. to deal business with, mm -hmm. that we're still dealing with yeah, that when we try to go to companies and say to them, look, here's Al Jazeera, here's our product, here's what we want to do. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, no, 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 we're not, you know, there's no way we're putting Al Jazeera and they're like, Al Jazeera, Al-Qaeda sounds too similar and, you know, whatever, you know, we're not going to have so-called terror TV on, uh, on our, uh, you know, cable providers. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, those two <laughs> have been the two biggest challenges. Now is it your goal to get a cable channel or is it to get segments on a channel that would have mixed or depends on what could be negotiated? Yeah, well surprisingly actually uh, <coughs> in the DC area, um, Al Jazeera had managed early on to uh, do exactly that. There was a few, I guess like public television um, organizations that would carry our newscasts, mm -hmm. um, either half hour segments or mm -hmm. hour segments on their uh, daily, you know, variety of channels. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's how actually Al Jazeera started out in um, in the United States. It was carried by other. We've now in DC secured a channel which broadcasts us 24 hours. Hmm. What we would like to do is for Al Jazeera English to be identified as Al Jazeera English on all of the dials, just like Fox News is identified as Fox News, just like CNN, BBC yeah. America, and stuff like that. So. Okay, let's ask some questions here. Yes, sir. Right, student, if you're a student, yes, please. Student. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. I, I, it was not clear for me, why were you allowed in, or you were allowed to remain inside of Gaza on December 27th? Sure, that's a, a good question. I should have explained that. Um, actually, I, I've been based in Gaza since May of 2008. So I am, uh, Al Jazeera English has a bureau in Gaza, and I have been the Gaza correspondent that has been based there since May of 2008. So where other networks have decided not to base correspondence, they don't think Gaza is an important enough story, visually rich security concerns, uh, Al Jazeera has been very committed to having a presence there. And in fact, um, if you maybe remember, in June of 2008, Israel and Hamas entered into a ceasefire agreement um, for six months. And in that six-month period, um, it was very, very quiet in terms of the rocket fire from southern I'm sorry, from Gaza into southern Israel, and uh, there was no major incursions by the Israelis into the Gaza Strip. But on November 4th, 2008, while the international media was focused on the U.S. elections, um, Israel carried out a raid that killed six Palestinian fighters and essentially shattered the uh, ceasefire. And in fact, it was that specific incident that had been ignored or neglected by most uh, media organizations. Uh, and we covered it live on the day of the U.S. elections. 
um, that said the ceasefire has now ended. The very following morning, there was a barrage of uh, Palestinian rocket fire into southern Israel. Israel responded in that cycle of violence that had actually held for about four and a half months kicked up. So for us, we had been there prior to that. I mean, we always have a, pre a reporter presence there. I'm the Gaza-based correspondent, so I had been there prior to the war on December 27th. So I was covering both the, um, the siege, the ceasefire, the U.S. elections and the reactions for Palestinians, and then ultimately the run-up to the war. Questions over here. I want to ask you a question. Okay, I want to ask you a question, which is about coverage of other Muslim but non-Arabic parts of the world, what the corporate news view is of that potential audience, because that, from a both commercial and a political point of view, must be of some moment for you folks. Absolutely. I think, um, first of all, Al Jazeera, Arabic and English, does not treat the Muslim world as this monolithic entity, because the reality of it is Indonesian Muslims, Turkish Muslims, Nigerian Muslims, um, you know, Arab Muslims, and Bosnian Muslims really have very little in common. We may want to, like, label them as the Muslim world, but the reality of it is uh, beyond their maybe religious beliefs, and there's a great deal of difference in that, but beyond the immediate religious differences, geopolitically, there is very little in common um, across the board, with the exception of maybe the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, in the sense that they feel that... It's a light motif across yeah. all of those Exactly, cultures, right? exactly. Right. So Al Jazeera Arabic and Al Jazeera English, we have <coughs> offices really across... Um, Al Jazeera Arabic more have offices all across um, you know, uh, Muslim countries from Indonesia all the way to, uh, you know, the Maghreb, uh, Morocco, and, and Tunisia. But is that a pickup that feeds back to Arabic uh, uh, audiences? It's not with a strategy toward reaching out to Muslim audiences? No, no, it's country. definitely not. Uh, yeah, Al Jazeera so does not. The English is only the one that you're going out. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And in fact, uh, sorry, I was just going to say one thing. In fact, Al Jazeera Arabic, um, in the coming months or in the coming years, is actually going to be launching specific language hmm. for That's different countries. So you're going to have Urdu, you're going to have uh, you know other languages, mm -hmm. hopefully down the line, a Turkish channel. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to trying to appeal to those markets on an individual uh, level, as opposed to trying to cover them just broadly and generally. And they, they are reaching to that audience, but they know that the vast majority, of, for Al Jazeera English, the vast majority of our audience is I don't want to say because we don't really have any accurate studies. We've just completed one, but the vast majority of our audience is not concentrated in the Muslim world because the vast majority of Muslims are not the English-speaking world that we're trying to target, whether it be U.S., Europe, India, um, you know, Australia, Africa, and stuff like that. So, student question. Students? Yeah. Are there any more students? Quick. Yeah. All right. And then you. Who owns Al Jazeera? I mean, could you just tell us a little bit? I mean, and where is it based? And sure. Uh, so uh, Al Jazeera is um, a state-owned media corporation in the state of Qatar. Um, it's very much modeled um, on the BBC model, which is that it's state-owned but independent from the state. So the state has no interference uh, in the editorial decision-making processes of the network. Uh, it was originally founded, there's a little backstory to it, and there's a lot of great books about the history of Al Jazeera, but uh, Al Jazeera was founded by a group of seven, I think, or so journalists that had worked for BBC in London and had originally approached uh, an Arab government other than Qatar to launch uh, an, a pan-Arab satellite. This was like in the mid-90s. And the first country that they went to said, no, we have nothing to do with this. We're not into the free media business and essentially turned these seven journalists away. So they went to another country and it was Qatar. Qatar thought the idea was great. And it was time for this, uh, you know, media enterprise to take hold. So they launched Al Jazeera Arabic, and now Al Jazeera Arabic 
is part of a larger network which includes uh, Al Jazeera Arabic, Al Jazeera English, Al Jazeera Mubashir, which is a 24-hour live uh, C-SPAN type of network. It includes nearly seven 24-hour sports channels. Al Jazeera Children, which is like a, a Nickelodeon or a cartoon type of network. Um, and in the future, like I was saying, they're planning on launching uh, networks in specific languages, potentially a business channel. So it's definitely an expanding uh, media coverage. But it is, it is owned, or at least I should say it's funded by the state of Qatar. Uh, <clears throat> I think we understand the context of Netanyahu in Israel, at least it's safe to say that at the Kennedy School and in Cambridge. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, could you help us just a little bit? You've been uh, in Palestine. What's the story between Hamas and Fatah, and why uh, is there nothing uh, uh, coming uh, together? Uh, we don't know much about the leaders of, of um, Hamas. We do know Abbas at uh, Fatah, but um, we have no context for that because we don't have anybody there. Uh, it, it is a part of the equation. We, we know about the Israel part and all the problems there, but can you help guide us through what might make things change how could the context change in uh, the relationship Palestine? between these two groups? Sure, that's a, that's a very good question. Actually, the, there's so many different angles to approach <laughs> it from. Let me actually just start. Lots off, of context. Yeah, let, let me actually just start off by saying that um, Al Jazeera hosted a forum in Doha not too long ago, and it was the first time, and this was actually recent news uh, yesterday, that a U.S. State Department official participated in a panel. A, state, a commissioned officer in the State Department commission, uh, participated in a panel with a Hamas member. Osama Hamdan from Hamas participated in this panel about uh, Islam and democracy and politics. And so too was this uh, uh, State Department, I forgot her name unfortunately, she's at the Council of Foreign Relations and uh, she actually sought the approval of the State Department to participate. She knew that Osama Hamdan was going to participate and they did. So it was something that Al Jazeera had actually done bringing these two people <coughs> together and breaking ground and supposedly there was an exchange afterwards. And, Hamas is not a um, is not a monolithic organization. It is a very pragmatic organization. Um, it is its leaders have a wide variety of opinion. They disagree on many issues: prisoner deals, reconciliation with Fatah, um, and many other issues. Uh, armed struggle. Some are in favor of shifting Hamas away from um, you know a consistent armed struggle to a more diplomatic as well as armed struggle. So there's definitely within the organization a debate. The problem with Hamas and Fatah is that they both control fragments of Palestinian society that in reality neither one of them controls, but they think they control. Hamas controls Gaza um, on the ground, you know, undoubtedly. But it doesn't control the airspace, doesn't control the water, doesn't control the entry points into Gaza. So in reality, it doesn't really control much of Gaza except the day-to-day -day <coughs> lives of the people. And in Fatah, uh, and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, well, we know what the reality of the West Bank is like. You know, they control a few pockets of cities and villages here, but at any given point, all it takes is an Israeli jeep to drive through and push all the Palestinian sources or security forces uh, out of the equation. And, and that. So where does that leave Hamas and Fatah? Obviously, they've been at odds for several years. There's a fundamental difference between Hamas and Fatah in terms of how to lead the Palestinian struggle. The standoff that has existed now for the past several years has been as a result of um, the fact that the two sides which wanted to control their own separate entities did not want to compromise, but realized that their own organizational objectives 
could not be achieved without national reconciliation. So for example, Hamas, which controls the Gaza Strip, wants to become the predominant organization that leads the Palestinian cause, cannot do so because it has no presence in the West Bank in a substantial <coughs> level. It doesn't have a visible presence in the West Bank. That's largely in part because of the Israelis, which have suppressed it, and more importantly now because of the Palestinian security forces, which have also, uh, since the Hamas takeover of Gaza, cracked down on Hamas's affiliates in the West Bank. Fatah, for its part, cannot be seen as a credible representative uh, organization of the Palestinian cause without having a presence in Gaza and controlling 1.5 million Palestinians and being able to guide them through this. So what you have is two organizations that realize that if they wanted to achieve their individual objectives, they have to come to the negotiating table and reconcile. And this is what took them so long over the past three years of infighting and uh, you know, national unity government deals and stuff. And now they've come to this conclusion. The National Reconciliation Pact is all but signed. Everyone knows what it's going to look like with the Egyptians. It's supposed to have happened. Unfortunately, Barak got sick, so he had to fly off to Germany and wasn't able to, to secure that. But what it has left is the question about um, how do you apply this, the application. There is no way that um, West Bank security forces under the leadership of the Palestinian Authority and Fatah trained by General Dayton are going to be allowed into Gaza. And there's no way the Minister of Interior in Gaza is gonna, who is a Hamas member is going to be able to control Palestinian forces in the West Bank that are going to be in the daily presence of Israeli forces and uh, you know, under the leadership of General Dayton. So what we have now is a stalemate in the application. And this is what they have been unable to actually resolve. How do you resolve this stalemate? The problem is, and very briefly, is Hamas has done the election experience. So they're jaded by it. In 2006, they won free and fair elections that were widely considered um, among the most democratic to have taken place in the Middle East. I mean, it was celebrated by the European Union, observers and monitors and stuff like that. And what ended up happening was, as soon as they won, they were not recognized, they were brandished to the side, they were told you have to accept our terms if you want it to be dealt with, um, and they rejected that. And that led to this tailspin that we find ourselves in. So when you come to Hamas nowadays and you say to their leaders, and I've spoken to many of their leaders in Gaza, and I say to them, well, why don't you go to elections? All they have asked for is a guarantee that if we win elections this time, there has to be a different uh, change in the international reaction. So the international community has refused to give them that guarantee. And that's why Hamas has not agreed to go to the elections so far. Even though they, they publicly say we'll go to the elections, they will say privately we will only go to the elections if we get this international agreement that whoever wins will be recognized. Uh, okay. okay. Uh, you had your hand up, and then I'm going to go over there, and then I'll move around the room here. Uh, my question uh, is about the coin. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of balanced in the middle of the room. And um, I, I think I think it's a good point. You know, there's multiple perspectives. I think one of the failures of most media is that we do try to put issues with two sides to it. And there's many sides, but it's just the, the right. constraints of a reporter piece. And my question is about projects that really embody those multiple perspectives that you're getting at. And, and I kind of have two prongs to it. One is I'm interested in any kind of media, possibly stuff that you've done, but it could be films or other media pieces, where you were just really surprised at how well they encompassed both sides of the project. The other thing is a little bit about new media, the iPad and iPhone. If you see interactive media uh, potentially leading to those kinds of 
discussions and perspectives on specifically issues. on the Palestinian or specifically on the Gaza on Palestine Palestine? yeah Palestinian okay. Israel <coughs> conflict and I think in a whole other context something that's blown me away is the uh, Hebrew um, uh, Arab bilingual schools that are coming up in Israel where you have yeah. kids at kindergarten who are learning each other's language and culture and I think that's a an amazing way to create leadership for the future. So Absolutely, yeah. There's, there's some very exciting things in terms of people who have tried to advance uh, reconciliation, at least on that level, a very entry level. Um, I think, it, you know, if the, the coin analogy, if I were to take a minute from a Hamas spokesperson and a minute from an Israeli spokesperson, I would have two minutes of crap almost, you know, if I can say it like that, you know, which is really, you know, very basic, but it's, I would have two minutes of spin from both sides. And that's not what I want to do, to be honest with you. I don't want to have two minutes of uh, information from both sides about that. And I'll give you, you know, just a very brief example. In the Gaza war, I was getting press releases and calls from Hamas officials every day that they had ambushed a house and killed seven Israeli soldiers, <coughs> three Israeli soldiers had been kidnapped, blah, blah, blah. By the end of the war, there was like 200 Israeli soldiers that were unaccounted for if you asked Hamas. And if you ask them, well, what, you know, after the war, what happened to them? You know, where are these numbers that you guys were telling us? Um, well, you know, they never materialized. It was not accurate information, mm -hmm. you know. So the, the issue really is for journalists to try and seek out the context. This is, this is why I was going back to this important point. Um, Twitter was a great resource during the Gaza war. Why? Because people who had cell phone technology in Gaza were uh, sending us messages there was this building that was bombed. You know, we were following, and I, I, we've seen it now with the Iranian Revolution. What was happening? Pictures and images, and all of that had taken off in uh, in, uh, in Gaza prior to the Iranian Revolution. But what it always devoids you of is what is really happening. I mean, I can somebody can send me a message that a school has just been hit, but that's exactly what happened with the Fahura, Is that somewhere along the lane, the the chain of information, a report came out that the school had been hit. And so everyone took it as a fact that the school itself had physically been hit. No one had actually stopped to say, well, had the school physically been hit or had the shells landed outside? Mm -hmm. And this is what led to this misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. In terms of uh, programs or, or, or education, I, I mean, I think it's, it's critical. It is critical if there's any chance for peace uh, between Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, education has to play an important role. And getting people to see the other's context, people in Israel have to understand what it means to live under siege in Gaza. People in Gaza have to understand what it means to live under the daily threat of rockets. Now, they live under the daily threat of Israeli attacks and incursions, mm -hmm. so they understand the psychological fear encompassed in that type of lifestyle. But what other people in the region have to understand is everyone else's different context. I think American media focus on um, the context that they see the conflict from is Israel's security rights. Yeah. Arab media focus on it from Palestinians' human rights. So even in that perspective, we have two very different uh, contexts competing with one another. Who is to prevail? And what we do know is that, you know, 60 years since its founding, Israel, which is by far the strongest military and economic power in the Middle East, is facing its biggest existential threat in nearly 60 years. So one can make the argument that Perhaps there's no direct correlation between Israel's <coughs> great security capabilities and the threats that constantly increase to meet those, uh, to meet that, to meet its existence. You know, I mean, Israel, by its own admission, now is in a greater threat than it ever has faced 60 years. Whether it's the Iranian threat, whether it's Hezbollah, whether it's Hamas, whether it's the internal demographics, yeah. um, and I think this is a very important point that sometimes, you know, 
over here in the corner. Uh, my name is Pedro Nika. I'm an MPP1 plus ESU in here. And uh, getting back to the Gaza and West Bank uh, context, I'm very interested about your opinion. What are the main differences in terms of the political, economical, and cultural elements in the two places? And also, which are some uh, informal organizations in, in Gaza other than Hamas and Fatah that you think could bridge a dialogue with Israeli leadership? With the Israeli leadership? Yeah. Um, well, so, generally speaking, Gaza and the West Bank have experienced very different uh, trajectories. I mean, both for a long time were subject to Israeli occupation, both uh, physically, in the sense that there was an Israeli military presence, as well as the settlements, um, and lived under very stifling conditions. Um, but obviously, since 2005, since Israel pulled its settlements out, um, it has changed the scope of the landscape of Gaza. Gaza has become it traditionally was a more conservative society, historically, in terms of like the Palestinian fabric. So it was more conservative. It was, um, uh, in some ways, it was sometimes financially better off because Gaza was a historic trade route from Africa into Asia. And so there's a very strong class, uh, a merchant class that it always existed there. Gazans are very, um, they're very, uh, they have a very strong agro-industry. They used to export a lot of, uh, uh, fruits and vegetables. So there's a, there's a, there was a stark difference in the two that nowadays still exists. I mean, the West Bank, controlled by Fatah, um, is has stronger government institutions, if you will, if you, if you can use that, even though I think that's a bit of slightly misleading because all of the government institutions in the West Bank, are, again, are subject to Israel's uh, military occupation. So at the end of the day, they don't really control what they think they control. Um, so there's a difference, but I think at the end of the day, Palestinian people share a lot of great similarities in terms of uh, their outlook. Um, in terms of organizations that can do business or build ties with Israel, I don't think there are many. I don't think, I think they're very small. I think the Palestinian people generally are very loyal to their organizations. They're, you know, and there's, there's a great deal of representatives uh, on the political landscape. You have Hamas, which is an Islamic organization. You have Islamic Jihad, which is an Islamic organization. You have Fatah, which is a secular organization, and you have PFLP, DFLP. So you have everything from the left all the way to the right that represents. So by no means are Palestinians a um, you know, monolithic entity. There's a great deal of pluralism politically and socially. But I don't think the Palestinian people in Gaza um, you know, have any kind of civil grassroots movements, uh, either in the West Bank or here. We're seeing it a little bit more in the West Bank in some of these um, peaceful activists in Bil'ain and Nil'ain and stuff, we're starting to see the very, you know, basic, you know, organization of these types of civil rights organizations that are not affiliated with any particular political entity, but are starting to lead grassroots movements uh, in trying to shape their own uh, future in activism. But no Tea Party movement. I no, 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 Tea Party movement. Right, right here, and then I'm going to move around here, and then I'll come over here. You have a unique background, both as an American and somebody well acquainted with the Arab and Muslim world. And if you were writing, a, you mentioned democracy and election, if you were writing an article or a book and wanted to pick one of the 20 plus Arab countries and another one from the rest of the 57 Muslim countries as a model of the democracy you would want to use as an example, which two countries would you choose? <laughs> wow, it's a... Um, can I tell you which two and why, or just tell you which two? Well, <laughs> you want to say why would be wonderful. <laughs> um, that was a chess move. That was very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, 
I don't know if there is a successful model of uh, democracy that has actually taken hold in an Arab country. How about the Muslim world, including the Arab countries? Yeah, well, I was going to say, I mean, I think, I, I want to say that the recent experience in Iraq in terms of uh, elections that were carried out were, you know, were celebrated as, as free and fair and had a good deal of pluralism. I think that's a system that could work. But I'm not necessarily sure it's what the Iraqis would do. So I, I, I really, I don't think one exists. But if I had to choose one, I would probably say that the Iraqi parliamentary system is one that has worked so far successfully in its first time around. You pick a second one too? Um, I would probably say from an Islamic point of view, probably Turkey. I think Turkey has demonstrated that, uh, as a, that Islam and democracy are compatible, even with secularism. Um, I still, they, they still have a lot of growth that they have to go through as a country, but I think they have demonstrated that uh, Islam and democracy are, are compatible. I mean, I think India as well, it's not a Muslim country, but certainly with its Muslim population, which is very sizable, has demonstrated. Thank you. Good. Yes. Thank you, Ayman. That was great. Um, would you say that there's, because I, I watch Al Jazeera Arabic and I read the English, so I, I am aware that there are some differences in terms of coverage. I'd like you to comment on that. What are some of the main differences that you see between Al Jazeera Arabic and Al Jazeera English, one. And two, um, carrying Al Jazeera, you know, being an Al Jazeera reporter, is it difficult for you to get visas and do you get trouble at airports passing through in America? And how do you handle that? Well, fortunately, the, the, my, my biggest blessing is I have an American passport, so uh. that trumps all <laughs> the visa requirements. So, you know, some of you know traveling in the Middle East with an American, it's, it's really sad because, you know, traveling into Egypt with an Egyptian passport is harder than if I had an American passport. My Egyptian passport actually says that I'm a producer for Al Jazeera, which always creates problems for me. So I travel with an American passport, <laughs> which great, doesn't say what I do, which is actually great. a lot. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of the differences between Al Jazeera Arabic and English, there is a great deal of difference. We're speaking to very different audiences. Um, the viewers who watch Al Jazeera Arabic know what Fatah and Hamas are, so they know the, the the differences. I'm not saying that English viewers don't necessarily know, but I would my point of level of detail exactly. My, my point of departure when I'm starting a report is saying that my viewer may not know that Hamas is an Islamist movement banned in Europe by uh, you know, organizations and in the US as a terrorist organization. So my point of departure is different than my colleagues in Arabic. Secondly, um, I think my uh, you know, colleagues at Al Jazeera Arabic, um, you know, Al Jazeera English, for example, we covered the US elections with a great deal of interest. Not to say that Arabic didn't, but the, the stories that we were doing out of, and you were alluding to this earlier, you know, like the Arab-American reaction, I mean, they're speaking to Arab viewers, so they want to know what do Arabs in America think. Now, as an international news organization, the, the voters, Arab voters in America, are a very small percentage. It's hardly, a, it may be like a nice feature story, but it's not something that we're going to be systematically following to see the trends uh, as Arab 30, 32 states being swung by the Arab American. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Not yet, exactly. Yeah. So, from that perspective, you know, it's just we're speaking to different audiences. The point of departure is different. The reference points that we use are sometimes different, you know. I mean, for example, Al Jazeera, and this is going to be maybe a little bit controversial, Al Jazeera Arabic uses the word martyr to describe Palestinians who carry out attacks or Palestinians who die in the context of Israeli-Palestinians. Now, we don't do that. Al it's more diplomatic and moderate, the English version. I don't know if it's necessarily more diplomatic. It's just, I mean, the word shaheed in Arabic means very different than martyr in English. So any Palestinian from an Arabic, this is the editorial decision by Al Jazeera Arabic. Any person who dies in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because they see it as a group of people subject to occupation are considered martyrs. We at Al Jazeera English, we don't use that term. Yeah.
And it's, it's that that's a decision by both of our boards, which are the same company. So. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hi. Um, a very well-respected well uh, journalist in Israel, or an, an Arab by the name of Khaled Abu Tomei, you probably know him. Yeah, um, some Post. Made some uh, significant uh, investigative reports about Al Qaeda's inroads in Gaza in the last couple of years. Yeah. Did you or Al Jazeera cover this story? Absolutely, we've um, uh, we've covered it extensively. I was in Gaza when they cracked down on Sheikh Abdul Latif Musa, who was the Sheikh in Rafah who declared an Islamic Emirate, which lasted for about eight minutes until Hamas <laughs> came in and <laughs> and killed him and all of his uh, all of his followers. Right. Um, so we've been following the story. It's a very sensitive story. It's something that Ham Hamas itself is very much uh, concerned about, and uh, they're putting a great deal of effort into putting these under wraps, these groups. No one. Um, the nation of Qatar is the primary funder of Al Jazeera. How does it measure the success of its enterprise? Is there a uh, system of accountability, particularly with two boards? Is there an editorial policy? And if, in fact, they're not around 10 years from now to continue funding what I would imagine is a very expensive enterprise, or 20 or 30 years, then where would they get funding? Um, Al Jazeera has put Qatar on the map. I mean, I think that's, <laughs> that's a safe thing to say. I mean, maybe Al Jazeera and maybe also Central Command, which is right down the road from Al Jazeera, Central Command headquarters in Doha. So, yeah, so I think uh, Al Jazeera, Qatar has benefited from Al Jazeera, has raised the profile of Qatar diplomatically. Qatar now is able to host, um, you know, the Darfur talks, which are taking place in Doha, and has become an active participant <coughs> in trying to uh, address many regional issues because of its stature, because of Al Jazeera. In terms of where Al Jazeera, if what happens, you know, what happens to uh, Al Jazeera is exploring, uh, I think, ways to generate revenues, but will not accept any kind of um, commercialization, such as American media corporations. So, for example, they know that they have a lot of access. Uh, I was going to say they have access to a lot of material, like um, archive material. They realize that they can sell that. They realize that they can maybe have <coughs> subscription services on on mobile phones. So there, there are ways that they're always exploring to kind of alleviate the funding and making it more independent than from the state. But I think for the time being, um, you know, it seems to be on secure footing. Yeah. In the back, please. One quick comment, two quick questions. One is the gentleman mentioned uh, about sort of other institutions in Gaza that are able to work with Israel. And I, when I was there in January, I noticed that the Palestinian Agricultural Relief Committee, KARC, was starting to coordinate with the Israeli counterpart in exporting strawberries and oranges and so on. So there seems to be organizational interactions that are happening. But some, for example, coordinate with PCRI uh, in their coverage and so on. Maybe we shouldn't look at it. Maybe at the stage where Gaza is right now, those kinds of coordinations are the only ones that are possible and maybe they're necessary. That was just one quick comment. Yeah. And I don't know if you're covering some of those kinds of stories which don't make the media, by the way. The, 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 the two quick questions. And one is um, Al Jazeera was a very good in licensing its content on, through Creative Commons. Yeah. They put the entire Gaza, I don't know how much of it, a lot of it on Creative Commons. Uh, that was a fantastic strategy. I'd like to know what happened of that, what was accomplished with that open media exchange. Yeah. So the second thing I want to ask you, which is related, is you talked about context. And I think it's very hard to get all of that context in these quick news blasts. So what is Al Jazeera trying to do to create extended programming, extended documentary footage, commissioning works by Gazans, for example? When I was there, there were people thirsting to develop media, but I didn't see evidence of institutional training and capacity building for media in Gaza. I was burdened with doing some of that when I was there, but I'm wondering what Al Jazeera's own strategy is in that regard. 
Okay, well, uh, let me take that last question first. First of all, Al Jazeera in Doha has a center for media training and journalists where we bring journalists from Gaza and others to train from around the world to train at this facility in Doha. Um, so that's... Uh, that's assuming you can get Gazans out. Unfortunately, that's, uh, you know, it's out of our control, but it's certainly something we work tirelessly to try to do through Egypt, and obviously they don't have connections with Israel <coughs> or contacts with Israel, but they try to in whatever capacity. So in that sense, the, the framework is there. The application, again, may be difficult because of the siege. So it's, I mean, Al Jazeera is not going to go open up a facility in Gaza, I can assure you that, for training when they're trying to bring journalists to Doha, where the environment and the infrastructure is much more conducive to that kind of training. In terms of programming, Al Jazeera English, as you know, is uh, divided into two divisions, news and programming. So our news content, which is the vast majority of our output, also incorporates a great deal of um, programs, including long format documentaries, and many of them from Gaza, as you probably are well aware, a lot more than other organizations. And just very briefly on the point about, like, you're right, you can't understand context in short news blasts. Uh, one of the studies or one of the, the, the researches that we've been able to, to identify is that if you look at an Al Jazeera newscast over the course of the hour, we may have four or five stories, but each story we spend maybe seven or eight minutes on. So our number of stories are less, but the in-depth that we go is a lot more. Now, you watch a CNN or a Fox News thing, you probably have 30 stories in that hour because each story is like boom, 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 rapid fire, a guest for a minute or two, and then you're on to the next story. So again, it's a different model. Now, many people say that's why Al Jazeera will never work in the U.S., that as soon as Al Jazeera comes into the U.S., people are going to be like, oh, I can't spend seven minutes understanding Darfur and Sudan and like eight minutes on it. You know, like, that's a lot of time. Yeah. That's a lot of time. I'm not interested. And, like n next thing you know, you're on the iPad story or something. Right? So I think it's always a bit of a, a, a trade-off. And Al Jazeera has positioned itself to say, we want to do less stories, but more in-depth. And it seems to have worked on an international level so far. Hopefully, we'll be able to try it out on an American level as well. What's the open content strategy? So the decision behind that was very simple. When Al Jazeera, um, when the war was over, they wanted to put all of the material because they felt that the Gaza war had not been given its fair justice in terms of exposure, particularly in the Western media. So they put all of the material it owned available through Creative Commons. Any filmmaker, uh, any researcher, any academic, anybody who wants to access our Gaza war footage, it's available online for free. Uh, without any restrictions, so long as you attribute it to Al Jazeera. So. Uh, no, I'm afraid we don't have any more time for questions. It is now 1 o'clock. I'd like to thank Ayman for coming today. I'd like to thank the Arab and Palestinian caucuses for co-sponsoring the talk today, and hope you'll come back again. Thank you very much.